Hey, Journey, good to see you guys. My name's Chris. If we haven't met, I used to work here, but I don't work here anymore. Now I live in Phoenix, and so now that I'm here as a guest speaker, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> All right? Kidding. I said whatever I wanted before, too. Um, but really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best today to, to say what I believe God is saying to me, what God has for all of us. And while we're being serious, thank you so much for having me back when you thought you'd gotten rid of me. Uh, here I am again. I'm honored to, to share God's word with all of you today. Uh, today, what we're doing is we're in a, a series that we're calling Big Butts of the Bible, which is awesome and hilarious at the same time. You're, you're allowed to think that as well, just so you know. Uh, up front. I may or may not have been involved in helping craft this series and choose the name. Um, I, I will say this though, as the creative team was working through it and, and looking at some options for what we might call a series, this particular title was probably at the bottom of their list. Somebody groaned. Come on. There are so many pun options. Like, we put that one behind you, okay? Because we're going to move on from there. <laughs> in, the, in this series, what we're doing is, is we're looking at these things that, that Jesus said, where, where often he'll show up on the scene and he'll say, you, you've heard it said, but I say, and he takes something and, and flips it around, right? The, the big buts of the Bible. And this one in particular is when Jesus is speaking in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. And, and we'll just take a look at what it is and come back to it here in a second. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 38. He says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And so as you think about that, you'll realize why it's also so hilarious that I've titled this message, Cheeks. And so on that note, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we could gather here. We thank you that we can gather in a place and we can laugh and we can have fun and we can talk about the big butts of the Bible. And then at the same time, we can carry whatever it is that, that we're experiencing in our lives into this place. And we ask that if there's something that might be keeping us from hearing from you, today, if there's something that might be keeping us from encountering you today, that we would set that before you, that we would move that to the side, and then we would just expectantly believe that you have something for each one of us specifically, as well as for us as a whole, and then we give you this time, God. Uh, at the same time, I pray that you would give me your words to speak, that, that I wouldn't say anything that's not from you, that, that we would make much of you, that we would glorify you, and that this would all be because we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So I need you to uh, imagine with me that, that we've been following Jesus, like the human version of Jesus. Not 2015, we're followers of Jesus, but like the year 30, and we're following Jesus, right? Human Jesus. And often when we imagine that we're following Jesus, we like to think that we're one of the disciples, right? That's a little bit more fun. Well, you're not one of the disciples today, you're one of the crowd, okay? So we're, we're the crowd, 
and we're following Jesus, the human Jesus. So imagine you're following him around, all right? We're all part of the crowd, and, and we follow him. And Jesus has just begun his earthly ministry, right? So he's just started teaching in the synagogue and, and performing some healings, right? Like word is traveling fast that, that this man is maybe not like any other teacher, that maybe he is the son of God that he's claiming to be. And so as word travels, that, that he's preaching with this authority and he's and he's healing along the way. We want to get a glimpse of this. We want to find out who this man is. Like we're, we're, we're like, okay, we can get around some of what this guy is saying. And so we start to follow him as we're intrigued by him and we start to listen to the way he teaches. And we're hoping that, that maybe too, as we follow him, maybe we'll get healed or at the very least, maybe we'll get fed. And as we're following him, he stops and we gather around him and he climbs up this mountain and he begins to teach us. It's not hard to envision this when we live here. So he's up in a mountain and we're listening in. Jesus is not carrying a microphone with him at that time. So I'd imagine we probably like turn a little bit and we lean in with anticipation, awaiting uh, what it is he's going to say to us from the top of this mountain. And as we're all gathered as bunch of people, the, the crowd, right? And like, let's say the year 30, it's likely we're Jewish people. And so we're, we're imagining what it's like to be those people who are following Jesus at that time, right? And as he climbs up this mountain, we're still, we're still intent on trying to figure out who is this man and what is he about? And as he climbs up this mountain, let's just call it a, a mount for short, and he's climbing up this mount, he turns and he starts to give this sermon I suppose we could call it the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And, and he starts to do this whole Sermon on the Mount thing. And you have to wonder what it is we're thinking, right? We're, we're a group of, of people, we're a crowd of, of most likely Jewish people gathered uh, below Jesus as he's up on this mountain and what would be going through our mind? What would, we, what would we be thinking about? What would this remind us of? Perhaps we're thinking back to the time when our ancestors were being taught the law of Moses. Right? Perhaps we're starting to think of who Moses was and the, the law that Moses gave us. If you don't know anything about that, if you haven't been back in the Old Testament and worked your way through to, to Jesus, then let me catch you up. There was this guy named Moses, and he led the people of Israel, God's people, out of slavery through the wilderness to the brink of the promised land. And as they were moving through the wilderness for 40 years, Moses was the man who would go to God up on a mountain and receive the commands in which he would give to the people, right? Moses would go up the mountain, meet with God, and he would come down, and his face was glowing and shining because of the presence of God had shown upon him, and people couldn't even look at him. He would cover himself with a veil, and he would say to the people as the mouthpiece of God, this is what God says, so we've got to keep in mind then as Jesus gives this sermon on the mount, the context in which he is sermonizing, right? We have these people that Jesus is speaking to, right? Most likely Jewish people who've been oppressed and who've been the minority for really as far back as they can probably remember. He's speaking to those who've been beaten down by the powers that be, and it's these same Jewish people who have lived by this law that Moses has given them, the way in which they believe to live their lives. This, this is who God says we need to be, and so they follow this law. 
And Moses, the Jewish hero, had gone up on the mountain and come down. So certainly as we gather at the feet of Jesus, right, in the the year 30, as the crowd gathered, we would have known about Moses and we would have known that he had climbed the mountain to bring down the word of God and we would have looked at this man who says he's the son of God and begins teaching and it would have not been lost on us that something is going on here. I've heard it said like this, when the law was first given on the mountain, the people were forbidden to draw close. But now as Jesus was teaching on the mountain, no one is forbidden. Rather, all are invited that they may hear because there is severity in the law and grace in the gospel. In the former case, terror is instilled in the unbelievers. In the latter case, a gift of blessings is poured out on the believers. The severity of the law was first given by Moses on the mountain, right? And everyone was afraid to approach God in that moment. But the people, again, were forbidden to even draw close. But now with Jesus, all are invited to draw near to him to hear of the gift of the gospel. And so here we are gathered at the bottom of this mountain to hear from Jesus. And with that as the backdrop, Right, setting up this great Sermon on the Mount, we end up with this teaching that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5, 38. I would love to move us through verses 1 through 37, but time does not allow, so go back and check that out and see how Jesus got to this point of teaching in Matthew 5. Right, we have to keep in mind multiple times already Jesus has said to the people as he's teaching, you've heard it said, you know the law, you know what God said before, but I say to you. So you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 538 will be on the screens. It could be on your notes page, and we'll take a look at Jesus' big butt. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Sorry. <laughs> I do. If you don't, then that's fine. All right, so here we go. Here's what Jesus says. There's good stuff here, too, I promise. Here, here's what he says. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And so as Jesus is saying this, as Jesus is giving this teaching, right, and remember, we're imagining that we're a part of this crowd and we have an understanding of what this law that you have heard it said actually says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life, all of that, right? We have to ask ourselves, well, what's up with that law? Because like 2015 version of ourselves, right, we're we're probably thinking that that's a bit extreme. An eye for an eye, actually, probably that's, Maybe painting a picture that's a little broad. Maybe some of you think that's okay. That's fine. I'm going to tell you otherwise by the time we're done. But you can imagine that right now, right? So we've got an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and we're like, I don't know. A life for a life, that seems, that seems extreme to some of us, right? Especially when you think about it in such personal terms. However, the original hearers of this, that's not how they would have viewed the law, and that was not the law's intention either, They would have been familiar with this. Jesus isn't saying that that law was a bunch of junk, like let's get rid of it. Because this law that they had heard, it was actually intended for the purpose of ridding 
evil from people's lives. It was actually meant to bring about the end of harm and violence and hurt. Right? The idea was that you would so value your own eye that you certainly would not want to take out the eye of another person, that you would so value your own life that you certainly wouldn't want to take the life of someone else. And so the purpose of this law was to deter evil from happening, right? Which makes sense. We can get around that. However, what happens is there's so much evil in all of our own hearts that it just keeps going. The cycle keeps happening. And so Jesus has something different to say, right? In light of their understanding of the law, That's when Jesus butts in. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Like this is the way of Jesus, right? Bumping us off balance. We have this complete understanding of what the law should be and how it should work. And now Jesus comes in and he says, no, 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 no. Don't even resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. And we start to get wobbly, right? And our our access is spinning. And we're like, what is going on? It's in fact the time in which Jesus drives to the heart of the matter. But he bumps us off what we know and how we perceive and what we've believed all along. And as we're shaking, he drives to the heart of the matter. Right? He's, he's saying, because that, that idea of the law, right, was about ourselves. That you would so value your own life, your own arm, your own eye, your own tooth. Right? And Jesus is saying, maybe it's not so much a concern about our well-being, but it's a concern about the well-being of the other. Right, he's spinning it around for us. Jesus is pointing the way to forgiveness and enemy love, which is absolutely revolutionary to the way that they were thinking. And so as Jesus speaks like this, we, we should be asking some questions, right? Like, yeah, okay, resist an evil person, but then you start to think about the cheek thing. And if you've ever been slapped in the face, like, have you, have you ever been slapped in the face, I guess, would be a, a question. You don't have to raise your hand and be like, Yeah, you know, real good one. You know, like, no, have you ever been hit in the face, right? Like, what is your reaction if you're hit in the face, if you're slapped or punched in the face, right? It's not typically to turn the other cheek, but it's this, right? Like, you you go back. That's like almost just our instinct. When we're hit, that's how we respond to hit back. And so if you start to imagine what it's like to be slapped or hit, in the face, this idea uh, of turning the other cheek is, a, is like, okay, so what? Do I, just get, do I just get beat up? I think I said, I said crap at my last sermon, didn't I? Yeah, do I just get the crap kicked out of me? Like, that, that's a legitimate question, though. Is that, is that really what we would let happen? Is that what Jesus is in? implying why would Jesus say to turn the other cheek and so so here's the thing I think we have to look at if we would follow such a command as that to turn the other cheek and if we follow it with like unquestioning obedience I think we're doing the exact opposite of how Jesus is asking us to think right because Jesus himself is not looking at the law or looking at scripture and saying well with unquestioning obedience it's a life for a life Jesus is saying, what if we approach the text? What if we approach scripture 
Instead, with a faithful questioning. Like, how do we really do that? Is this the way that leads to love, that leads to acting like Jesus? Derek Flood writes it like this. The priority of Jesus was not in defending a text. It was on defending people. And so if the way we read scripture does not lead us to love more and act more like Jesus, perhaps we're reading it wrong. Right, Jesus was talking about defending a people, particularly defending the victims of religious violence and abuse. And so now we've got to look at who Jesus was talking to again. Right, remember, that's us, we're the crowd. We're gathered before the mount, hanging out, listening to Jesus, and we are the people who have been oppressed. We're the people who've been hurt and beaten and told to go to the margins of society It's probably why we're gathered on a mountain somewhere in the wilderness, right? And these are the people who are not in power. And so Jesus says that our response to those who are in power is to then turn the other cheek. What's really easy to do when we read this, and I probably did it my whole life up until a week ago, is I always related to the person who got slapped. I thought of myself as the one being slapped. But the question also would be, have you ever hit someone in the face? Have you ever slapped someone or struck someone in the face? When I was in college, I had a a college basketball coach who was this little guy, little scrawny, short guy, even scrawnier and shorter than me, if you can believe that, right? And and we had had been playing terrible and uninspired, and at halftime, he comes in to the locker room, and he, he throws down his clipboard, and he's like all worked up because we're getting smoked. He's like, how many of you have ever been in a fist fight? Right, and, and we just start cracking up because obviously he hasn't, right? Like, that's not a valid question, coach. Totally killed the, the moment, right? But think about, what, think about that. What is it like to hit someone in the face, right? Like, maybe you've done that. And now I want you to think for a second if you had hit someone in the face and their response was to then turn the other cheek and say, well, you can hit me again. What would that do to the one who comes with the power in that moment to hit you? What does that do in the heart of the one who's inflicting harm, inflicting hurt, inflicting violence when that's how we respond? Right, Jesus is talking to those who had been oppressed, who those were being pushed down by the powers that be. But if we look at what he's saying and we start to use this faithful questioning, then is that always the case? Is it always prudent to turn the other cheek? Perhaps not. For instance, let's think of this. What if you are a prison guard, right, and you're working in a prison, and one of the inmates starts beating you, like swinging and hitting you? Are you going to go, I'm turning the other cheek? Is that responsible to just let the, like the inmates just start beating the prison guards? Faithful questioning, right? That's what that looks like. So Jesus is saying that when you are in a place where you don't have power, your response to turn the other cheek will diffuse that power. But he's not saying just roll over and take it every single time it happens. So can we defend ourselves? I'm not sure exactly how I would answer that question. That's for you to work through as well. 
But I think that Jesus is implying when he says turn the other cheek, he's speaking to those who are in a place of oppression, those who've been harmed and beaten down already. So what happens then when that person turns the other cheek? What are they doing? What are we doing? We're breaking the cycle of violence and hurt and harm. We're not getting sucked in to mirroring the hurt. I mean, you don't have to look very far. You don't even have to look to the news to see the cycle of violence and hurt and harm. You could just look in your own life and you could think about a relationship you're in or someone you care about and they hurt you. And a lot of the times your first reaction is to hurt them back. How are you gonna get even? How are you gonna make them pay for what they've done to you so that they feel what you felt? It's not hard for us to imagine that and we see it on a a world scale as well that the cycle goes around and around. And so Jesus is saying the moment we turn the other cheek, the the moment we give our coat along with our shirt, the moment we take the bag an extra mile, the moment we give when someone asks, we're breaking the cycle of hurt and harm and violence. I think at, at its very core, Jesus's call to love our enemies actually challenges our understanding of justice. And it asks the question, what if justice was not about punishing and hurting, but about mending and making things right again? Or like the the nonviolent love of Jesus, right? A love that extends to his enemies and our enemies is actually a love that's constantly challenging us to enlarge the border of inclusion beyond its normal boundaries. Typically our our boundaries, right, in which we include people to love, it's got like our family, right, our, our tribe, those we associate with the most, our nation. Like you're like, yeah, they can be in my boundaries. I can love those people. And the enemy love of Jesus is continually challenging us to extend the boundaries in which people are loved and who's included in that love. Right, those people we would typically deem unworthy in our enemies, Jesus is saying, no, include them in your boundaries of love too. And I think that that way of living or that way of thinking or being, it seems backwards and crazy and countercultural. But I think it's also more effective than we think it is at overcoming the ways of violence. Here's another thing that Derek Flood says. He says, when people speak of nonviolence, nine times out of 10, what they are thinking of is nonviolent resistance. This is turning the other cheek applied on a corporate scale. Two names that immediately come to mind here, right, are Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., right, and their nonviolent resistance to oppression and hurt and violence. What is less well-known is that beginning in the 1980s, for the first time in human history, nonviolent resistance campaigns successfully toppled multiple oppressive regimes across the globe, often in the face of overwhelming military power and brutality. A recent study compared the outcomes of 323 nonviolent and violent resistance campaigns from 1900 to 2006, And they found that major nonviolent campaigns were effective 53% of the time, whereas violent ones only worked 26% of the time. So in other words, while nonviolent resistance does not always work, it is twice effective as violent resistance. Now maybe Jesus 
was on to something, right? I mean, we give him a lot of credit a lot of the time for being on to something, but maybe he was here as well, not just in effectiveness, but in the actual power that comes from enemy love, the restoration and reconciliation that actually comes from enemy love. It seems to me that Jesus is implying, to, to quote a song lyric, that you cannot love in moderation. And motivated by love, I think our question then becomes, well, what can I do to repair? What can I do to repair? What can I do to end the cycle of hurt and harm and violence? I'm sure you've heard about what happened in Charleston, South Carolina. The Emmanuel AME Church, a mostly black church, was gathering on a Wednesday night for a prayer and Bible study group. A young man comes to the door. He knocks on the door and they invite him in. Already extending, I suppose, the, the boundaries of love. And they invite him in and he sits down with them for an hour as they pray and read scripture and talk about who God is and what God's like. And then within that hour, something happens and this young man opens fire and he kills nine people in the midst of this prayer group. Nine people died in their church on a Wednesday night, praying and studying the word. And then a couple days later, the families of these victims are given an opportunity to, to speak to the man who murdered their families. And at that moment, I'm sure, like, you, you can go and listen to this. You can go and tune. You should go check this out. But it, before anybody speaks, it, it is certainly something inside of us that says, well, I think it's okay. I would totally get it if they said, well, I hope what happens to our what happened to our family happens to you. We would understand what that would look like and feel like. That they would say to the killer, I hope you experience what we're experiencing right now, what our friends and family experience. That, that would make sense to us. We would get that that could be their response. They were nine people gathered in a church on a Wednesday night reading scripture and praying together. Yet these families, they come up and they're given an opportunity to speak. And their response is one of forgiveness. They say to this young man who shot their family after an hour of being with them, we forgive you. We forgive you. Know that this hurts. Know that this breaks us as well, but we forgive you. And we want God to rescue you as well. And in that moment, those people those family members, they choose to break the cycle of hurt and harm and violence. They choose the way of enemy love because they had every right by the world's standards 
to say, I hope it happens to you too. Yet they choose another way. They choose the way of Jesus. They choose the way of enemy love, the way of what can I do to repair this. But right? there, there are people who've been oppressed and beaten down for years and they, they could certainly say to the powers that be, give him justice, right? And instead they give him forgiveness. What does this look like to live this way, right? Not only with our enemies, but also during the times in which we make enemies of our friends or we make enemies of our spouses or our family. What does it look like then in those instances to make things right again? And if this is sounding hard, it's because it is. It is, but as is the way of Jesus. Right after preaching this sermon on the mount, right, you've gotta think about this because we know the end of the story, we know how Jesus ultimately lives his life, but think about these people. We're the crowd and we're gathered before this man teaching on the mountain and he says, here's the way to live your life. Turn the other cheek. Right, give the coat to that who asks for your shirt. Carry the soldier's bag an extra mile. Go the extra mile. Give when someone asks. Love your enemy. And we're like, that sounds crazy and revolutionary, Jesus, and I think I can get around it. But at the, at the core, these Jewish people are certainly still hoping that Jesus will overthrow the powers that be, and they're still thinking it might come by way of force. They get the teaching, they understand why it matters, I'm sure, even if they're wrestling with it, but they still think it might happen a certain way, and so such is the way of Jesus. His whole life is a way of saying, I'll go first, watch me. And so after the beginning of this ministry and this Sermon on the Mount, it's seriously like, it's a teaching that changes everything. Jesus follows through. And as Jesus is praying, he's arrested. And, he, and he's taken away and they, they start to beat him. And Jesus chooses to do what? Turn the other cheek and he doesn't fight back and they beat him and they beat him. And then Jesus goes before the court and what does he say when you go before the court? If they ask for your shirt, give your coat also. And they take Jesus' clothes and he gives them all of them so much so that they're gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross as he's being crucified. Jesus says, when a soldier says, carry my gear a mile, take it an extra mile, right? The, the, the law or the rule of the, the day was that a soldier could ask anyone to carry their gear for a mile, and you had to do it. And Jesus says, go the extra mile. Well, Jesus takes up a cross and he carries it up a mountain. And he goes the extra mile as he carries his own torture device on his back to the top of a hill. And Jesus says, give when they ask of you. And they ask for his life. And so he gives it. That's the way of Jesus. That's the sacrificial love, that's the enemy love, so much so that Jesus goes through all of that and there he is on the cross. And Jesus would rather die than kill his enemies. 
And as he's hanging on that cross, right, one account says he looks down on the people and he says, God, forgive them. Even in the midst of all of that, Jesus is still practicing enemy love and breaking the cycle of hurt and harm and violence to the fullest. Jesus says, this is the way in which we live. This is the way in which we experience the fullness of life. I know it's hard, but it's worth it. And that's a love and that's a life and that's a way of living that's worth surrendering to. Let's go ahead and set our things aside. Let that land, I suppose, on you however it needs to land. And let's just take a few moments before God pray. Perhaps perhaps there's some sort of something that's happening in your life where someone in power is hurting you and you need the strength or the courage or the surrender to break the cycle. Ask that God would be with you in that. Perhaps you're in a position in which you've been doing the hurting and the harming. Perhaps you could ask God to change the way of your heart. Or maybe you're just sitting here and You're hit and lost by the overwhelming love of Christ and the way in which he lives his life. When that that is over and over again, the picture of how much he loves you. Let that settle on you. Spend a few moments praying and I'll close us in a bit. God, as we begin to close our time together this evening, we thank you that you are a God who shows us the way and shows us what you're like. And if, if we're ever wondering what it is you're like, you've directed us to your son, Jesus. And that is who you are in human form and we see a picture of a life that if we ever wondered how you love and who you care for and what that looks like we see it in the person of Jesus 
And we see it in, in Jesus' reconciling nature that, that all would be included in his love. And we see it in the countercultural revolutionary love of Jesus that says, again, I would rather die than kill my enemies. And God, the, the truth is that is a, a hard thing for us to comprehend, a hard thing for us to grasp that you would love to such extremes as that. And my, my prayer for us as a, as a people would be that we would continue to extend the boundaries and the borders that we've set up and that they would continue to broaden and widen to include all of the people that you choose to love, which is everyone. God, help us love that way. And God, again, as we see the love of Jesus played out in this way, would we be reminded too that while Jesus' self-sacrificing love on the cross, a death that provides a way for us to have a relationship with you, that that's not the end. And that as Jesus is buried in the grave, he's raised to new life in three days. There's resurrection, there's new life, and that's your promise to all of us who surrender our lives to you that there is new life, that there is resurrection, that there is healing, that we would believe that and trust that and follow that, and that we would know that when we step into this relationship with you and we choose to follow you, that we don't go alone, but that the power of your spirit goes with us. We are resurrected and move forward in new life. God, give us the courage to go in that direction. Give us the strength to imitate your son Jesus in the way we live our lives. And in the midst of all of that, God, would, would it just continue to be a, a life lived to glorify you, to point people to you, to make you known? That we would never stop loving with this extreme, crazy, countercultural love that you've modeled for us. Would that be our motivation as well? God, would we know today that we are loved by you as we are right now? And that we are so loved that you long to continue to transform us, to make us more like you. Would we be reminded of your presence with us as we go through our lives this week? And would they continually point to you? We love you. In your name we pray.